In this episode, we speak with Michael Kuman, Managing Director at Great Hill Partners, which he joined in 2002. Michael serves on the firm's investment committee and executive committee. He focuses on digital commerce and software investments. Great Hill Partners is a Boston-based private equity firm that invests in high-growth disruptive companies across five core sectors, software, digital commerce, financial technology, healthcare, and digital infrastructure. Over the past two decades, Great Hill has raised over $12 billion of commitments across eight funds and invested in more than 95 companies. The firm was recognized by GrowthCap as a top 25 private equity firm of 2022. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. Nice to be here. I'd love to kick off, you know, what I thought about your background was really interesting. I think you joined the firm close to when it really began to get traction. I'm sure the firm looks a lot different today than it did then. Tell us a little bit about the beginning stage and then the journey and where it is today. Sure. Now you're taking me back in the, in the way back machine here. We've been around for over 20 years since really the late 90s. And I joined in 2002. So we've been around for a few years at that point. But as you said, very early in our evolution. As you can imagine, the firm has changed. Frankly, the industry's changed a lot, right? I mean, I've been doing this since 1994, back when private equity was much more of a concept. It was a bunch of men and women getting together to invest and find some good opportunities. But the concept that it was actually an industry. I think was lost to most of us. Maybe there were some people who were a little more strategic than I was in my uh, early 20s. But at the time, I think we just all thought it was a fun opportunity to invest money and, and hopefully make a little as well. And so by the early 2000s, the industry obviously had grown up a bit, but it was still pretty nascent. The largest funds were still in the low to mid single digit billions, not obviously 20 to 30. And the level of competition, the number of firms out in the market was obviously much smaller. So when I got to Great Hill, we were sort of in our infancy and trying to figure out what we wanted to be. We still had the same entrepreneurial spirit that I, I think we still uh, continue to have and very intellectually curious. So we were always trying to find new areas of opportunity, new markets, new segments. But the bones were set at the time, which was research-oriented, outbound in nature, growth-focused, looking for great businesses, great management teams again, in high growth segments that we thought could be strategic assets. And so we were doing that at the time across internet, software, healthcare, fintech, and consumer. And that's continued, you know, really for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Since then, obviously, we've scaled a lot. I mean, when I showed up, we our fund was under $500 million. Our most recent fund is close to $5 billion. The team has grown. I don't think I have this to the exact, but my guess is we've probably at least tripled in team size, if not quadrupled. You know, along the way, we've had to build a lot more infrastructure and structure into the way we both go to market and invest. But it's been a fun journey and pretty successful to date. You have some really notable names among your investments, Wayfair being one, Bombas and another one, Custom Inc. 
how much success were those companies having at the time you invested in them? Well, the three of those all had different journeys. I mean, I'll hit on each of those really quickly. So, you know, at the time we invested in Wayfair, see if I get my dates right. In the spring of 2011, the company had been around for about a decade at that point. They'd taken no institutional capital and they'd scaled up to half a billion of revenue profitably. And so, you know, that business had been pretty successful. They were a little off the radar screen. They were well-known in Boston, but not as much so nationally because they yet to create the Wayfair brand. They had a bunch of 300 plus distinct websites in the home category. And part of the strategy and our thesis was they could build a unified national brand. And so we invested right as they were launching that. So that business, I think, had achieved a, a fair amount of success. Although, you know, since then, I think, you know, revenue's up about 25x. So they've obviously continued that trajectory. Bombas, when we got involved four years ago, I think it'd been around about six years. They had gotten started, you know, four entrepreneurs who co-founded the company and they'd really had a sort of a rocket ship. They doubled almost every year and we got involved in the business. It was doing, I think, about 50 million in revenue at the time. Obviously, it's gotten much bigger since then, but they'd also done it very profitably along the way without much institutional capital. And they'd achieved success, I think, in their sort of core sock market. Since then, they've broadened out considerably into other products like underwear and t-shirts and slippers and, and obviously scaled the business tremendously. So again, they'd achieved some success, but you know where Great Hill lives is really in that scaling inflection point, the good to great concept, you know, the small to mid-size to, to large is where we really end up participating. And you know, Custom Inc. had been around for about 15 years. It was founded by Mark Katz a couple of years out of his dorm room as a Harvard physics major, left Wall Street after a couple of years and decided to get into the custom printing market, focused on apparel. And so that business had also gotten to a fair amount of scale, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. And he had, he had raised some money along the way, but not a tremendous amount of capital, been pretty capital efficient. But again, the idea was that we could create a national branded leader in a pretty fragmented category. So I think that's a consistent theme. You'll hear that across the digital commerce types of companies, which you raised. You'd hear that in our fintech companies or our healthcare companies or our software companies. It's getting these businesses that have really good market position with tremendous momentum that maybe aren't quite yet mature, a little bit more adolescent. If you sort of drew a parallel to your kids, we specialize in taking those adolescent companies with great momentum, great product, great technology, and taking those to be fully scaled assets. And that, that's really where we live in the market. It's always surprising to see these companies that have tremendous, already a tremendous amount of revenue that they're generating and yet haven't taken in any capital. Do you still see that given how competitive it is in the overall private equity and growth equity market? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of companies. It's not just that they haven't taken in no money. The question is, have they been capital efficient? I think what we saw over the last two or three or four years, and you see these in, in these cycles and these bubbles, when capital is cheap and certainly you know the Fed keeping rates as low as it did for as long as it did, you saw an influx of capital, cost of capital went down considerably. And so people took advantage of that by raising lots of money. The issue is it tends to produce bad habits. And when you're forced to actually be capital efficient, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs, but generally you end up running a better business and that business then has the ability to scale. And so we've tended to focus a little bit more on those types of companies. 
there will certainly be businesses that we invest in where we're buying from venture capitalists or from private equity firms. But we do frequently do deals with founder-owned companies or significantly founder-held companies that have been a little bit more efficient and deliberate in how they've gotten to where they've gotten to. Mm -hmm. Great Hill has had a very strong reputation for its entire existence. And I've known people who have come from there and gone on to do different things. You've stayed there the large majority of, of your career. And the folks I've met there have been tremendous, you know, just like great people. Can you tell us a little bit about the culture at Great Hill? Yeah, it's, it's something I like talking about. It's always hard to describe a culture, right? You almost have to, it's like art, you kind of have to see it and know it. But we like to consider ourselves, I think, humble, truth-seeking, about as round-elbowed as you can be in the private equity world, very collaborative. We really focus and frankly compensate everyone at the firm on being collaborative. It's shared success and shared failure. And I think you have a lot of people who've been here who are scrappy and have sort of done it on their own. You don't have a lot of silver spoons at the firm, a lot of people who've created whatever they've created by their hard work and some level of ingenuity. And so I think we take pride in that. I'd like to think if you asked around, people would say we're good partners, we're steady. We don't overreact when things are going poorly. We certainly don't get too full of ourselves when things are going well. And I, I would hope that, and I do think that is the perception that we're good people to have around and you know, good partners to have. One thing that's great about the growth investing space is that there is this intent to help grow companies, grow the economy, create jobs. You have on your website jobs created over 19,000. And I thought that was fantastic because it's not really at the forefront when you think about the overall private equity industry. We do talk about the benefits that go towards you know some of these pension funds, firemen pensions, police pensions. Tell us about your growth ethos and more of the mission behind Great Hill. Yeah, I mean, we definitely come at the investing landscape with a growth orientation. It's not a growth at all costs orientation. So we do sort of balance the concept of value against growth. You know, our portfolio, I think, is growing in the 20s right now, which is pretty impressive given the economic backdrop. And you know, we're looking for businesses typically growing between 15 and 50%. You'll see some outliers higher, maybe a couple lower. But at some point when it hits escape velocity, it's probably a little bit more like a, a venture deal. So we, you know, we have a bit of a Goldilocks framework. You know, not too cold, not too hot, right in the middle. That's a good sweet spot. But again, we, we view our strategy and our position as helping either entrepreneurs or talented management teams build leading and iconic businesses in their categories. And unlike some other firms, I think really have a blueprint, we have a playbook, meaning we have some repeatable strategies that we apply across the portfolio, but we do believe that every company is unique and distinct. And we try to create a bespoke, tailored approach to each of those companies. So it's a combination of art and science. The science is all of the repeatable processes that we've developed over the years. But we do really try to diagnose and assess the company's needs and opportunities at an atomic, individual level. And I think that plays well with entrepreneurs and management teams. They don't really want to feel like they're a widget. And we don't believe that that's, at least in our opinion, the best way to attack the growth market. Having spoken to a lot of investors over the years, I feel like everyone has their own favorite portfolio company or, or case study 
of something that was really challenging and then they were able to really succeed in the end. Do you have a case study like that? Well, I, I could probably give you 20. I mean, I think some, something that's at least recent I'm really proud of is really across a couple of companies, but the pandemic definitely tested the metal of certain companies and certain management teams. And we had a lot of companies in the pandemic that had substantial tailwinds as either there were shifts to e-commerce or movement from on-premise to cloud or things in healthcare, other things where we were beneficiaries. We also had some companies that really got hit, two of which I'll talk about. The first is Custom Inc., which you mentioned, which is a customized apparel and merchandise business focused on groups and group events, activities, et cetera. And so in a world where people cease to get together, the concept of a group changes tremendously. So for a couple week period in March, I think it was late March, early April of the pandemic, that business, which is a really scaled large asset was down, I think 75 or 80% year over year. And you really didn't know which way was up. And the team rallied in a way that was really impressive First, they had to diagnose the issue and the challenge. They took some very swift action on the cost side. They actually furloughed a massive number of their employees. They didn't let them go, but they basically told their people, give us a little bit of time while we figure this out. And this is a company that's been named, you know, best place to work, top 100 in America for a long time. They'd really earned the right with their team members to do that. And very quickly pivoted their supply chain, actually started selling PPE, started selling masks and other things. In the first 60, 90 days, they put up their best, most profitable quarter ever. And in the time it took to do that, they also formulated and figured out where the demand, the remaining demand in their core market was and attacked that. They were able to bring back pretty much everybody they furloughed and ultimately now have gotten through the pandemic substantially stronger than where we entered. We have another business called Today Ticks, which is the leading ticketer for performing arts. Think Broadway, West End, theater, effectively. You know, that's a business that went from growing incredibly quickly, doing great, to having approximately zero dollars of revenue for over a year. And so again, you learn what your teams are made of. They also tighten their belts, but they went on the offensive. We bought some companies. We migrated some technology platforms and repositioned the business or at least solidified our position in the market such that when the industry reopened here over the last nine months, the company's now substantially, again, better off than where we entered massive market share gains. And so you never know what shoe is going to drop in this industry, whether it's a recession, whether it's a cyber attack, whether it's an employee issue, you name it. I have to say, I didn't expect there to be a airborne virus being transmitted globally that wasn't in the risks and opportunities section of our investment committee deck. But it's nice to see that when you invest in good assets and back great teams, those are usually good formulas for success. And even in the most dire environment, I think that's been validating. That's very interesting to hear what actually was the end result. I'm sure during the time you were probably heavily involved in conversations or thinking through what the right next step should be. Can you tell us a little bit more about that situation, how you were able to work with your management teams? Yeah, and look, some of it's hand-to-hand in the trenches combat where you're getting in with them and really figuring out where the levers are in a business. 
I'd say at least 50% is part therapist, part priest, part rabbi, right? It's a pretty dark time when take custom made, that's a business that had been successful really throughout that prided itself on culture and team having to furlough that many people. That's not an easy thing to do for a founder CEO, even one talented like Marquette. So a lot of conversations that go beyond the purely economic and financial and definitely go to the personal and emotional. And, you know, that's a part of the business that people probably don't appreciate the interpersonal part, especially as a private equity investor. Everyone has to be able to get the zeros and the ones right. And everyone has to have a sense for market and a sense for what's a good investment or not. But the other part that people talk about less, and frankly, I think the part that ultimately you asked what's part of the Great Hill culture, I think one of the reasons we're able to win in the market is I do think we get the EQ side of the equation. I wouldn't say we nail it. That would be probably overly boastful, but I do think we're cognizant of it and we're pretty good at that part. Are there certain areas of technology now that are super interesting to you? Well, I don't want to dodge the question. I mean, right now, I'm probably more focused on the macro than the micro, right? So you've got a world where you've got inflation at 8% in the States and in Europe, double digits, rising rate environment, Fed's pulling back on, I guess it would now be called quantitative tightening against quantitative easing. Consumer sentiment's pretty low. I think business sentiment's starting to turn as well. And so right now you've got valuations that have been coming down. You've got a big bid-ask spread in the growth market. And so you've seen a velocity slowdown of deal flow that's tremendous, right? I mean, I haven't seen the stats, but it's probably down 75, 80% year over year. That's not gonna last forever. I think over the next two to four quarters, I think equilibrium is going to happen and then people are going to transact at the market. That either means sellers are going to come down or buyers are going to go up or it's going to meet somewhere in the middle. So with that as a backdrop, I think we are definitely focused on a lot of the same themes that we've always been focused on because the themes we're focused on are generally 10 or 20 year themes. So we'll talk about those at the macro level. In financial technology, you've got the digitization of transactions away from cash and check to things like digital payments, whether it be B2C, B2B, what have you. We're not in the ninth inning there. We're still probably in the third or fourth inning. And so opportunities there continue to present themselves to us. In healthcare, we're focused on either companies that bend the cost of care downwards or improve the quality of care. Again, those are opportunities that are independent of an economic cycle. The shift from on-premise to the cloud, the shift from traditional retail and consumer to digital, omni-channel, online, mobile, et cetera. So it's a macro way of answering your question. There's not a specific micro vertical that I think would be particularly interesting. There are themes within all of those master categories that I talked about. But again, when you're taking a massive market and migrating market share from an incumbent to an insurgent, you can do that across economic and credit cycles. And we've done that now for 20 years. So I don't think that's changed. I read that you're a guitar player. If I were to hand you a guitar right now through the screen, what would you play? That's a great question. Do I have anyone backing me up or is it... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I'd my, back my you up 13, on drums. My 13-year-old plays drums, so if I can convince him to play with me, I'd probably get him to play a Foo Fighters song. So we play a Best of You by the Foo Fighters. 
my follow-up question would be, what's your favorite band? Is it the Foo Fighters? I've got a lot, but Foo Fighters are always good. They're, they're fun to play right now in terms of contemporary. Okay, last two questions, which has uh, become standard in my interviews. One is, can you tell me about a book that has had a profound impact on you, or you can simply provide a book recommendation? All right. You had asked something earlier. Well, I think maybe you sent a note around a book and a person. I think it was a person. Right. Uh, so I'm going to wrap those two together. Okay. I don't want to say profound, but it's a book I read recently that I thought was timely. I read a book by, I think it's by Eric Larson called The Splendid and the Vile. And it's basically about, it's a think about a two-year period, maybe less, about Winston Churchill during the Blitz at the beginning of World War II. Excellent. One final question. I noticed you went to Princeton. I live in Princeton. Curious what your favorite Princeton memory is of the, I guess it could be of the town or of going to school there. Well, my favorite food was Hoagie Haven. That was always after, you know, one in the morning. And my favorite memory of Princeton, you know, probably the friends that I created over the years. At the end of the year, they did these house parties outside. It was always a couple of days of uh, hanging out with your friends. That was always fun. So a lot of good memories with good friends. Excellent. Well, Michael, I want to thank you again for taking the time for this conversation. I know our audience will find this very insightful. All right, RJ, thanks for chatting. Thank you.